You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Juliet Eilprin, Deputy Climate and Environment Editor here at The Washington Post. Today, we'll have two segments about how the U.S. government is investing in climate change solutions. My first guest is Democratic Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico. He's a member of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Senator Heinrich, welcome to Washington Post Live. Oh, it's great to be here. Excellent. Let's get started. Uh, so why don't we start with the recent COP27 climate, climate conference, UN climate conference in Egypt, um, where nearly 200 countries agreed to help uh, pay poor and more vulnerable nations um, for the damage caused by climate change, um, which is also known as, as a loss and damage. Um, do you support that initiative that was adopted at the at the COP conference in Egypt? Yeah, I do. It, I think it's really important because it it really gets everyone in the tent uh, because it's going to take a real unified effort to address this globally. And you know, I, I think the the fact that you now have stronger support because of that from uh, a number of of countries that are really feeling the direct impact of this on their populace and on their economies right now, coupled with real leadership in the United States for the first time in a number of years, it really gives us the momentum to begin to deal with this on a global scale. Now, earlier this year, U.S. Special Climate Envoy John Kerry indicated that the payments to address loss and damage would cost trillions of dollars. Do you think that you know that's an accurate assessment of what we're talking about in terms of what more industrialized countries will be paying? And what do you think in terms of you know American support for such an initiative, given the fact that there's been some resistance to spending money to help vulnerable countries overseas in the past? I, I think I don't know what the precise scale is going to be, but the principle is important because we're going to see uh, incidents like what we saw recently in Pakistan, uh, rising sea levels for many, many nations in the Pacific. And I, I think the lesson here is we're all in this together and the United States should be a world leader. We have always been a world leader and we should continue to do that. Now, even though the nations at the UN conference agreed to obviously establish this new fund, they failed to take you know, more ambitious action to curb greenhouse gas emissions and every indication from the most recent updates in terms of nation's commitments is we're still on track for catastrophic warming and and will overshoot the agreed upon uh, global climate goal. And so I'm wondering what you think about that as potentially a missed opportunity and why it is it was so hard and continues to be so hard to mobilize countries across the world to commit to greater greenhouse gas emissions reductions at a time where there's broad agreement among these countries that we are headed into dangerous territory when it comes to global warming. Well, I think that the science is, is very real, but I think the way that humans adapt to change is very nonlinear. And so uh, I, I think the way that we can accelerate the global change is to actually lead here at home. And it's really important to realize that what we've done this year with the Inflation Reduction Act is probably much bigger than we even realized at the time. 
the, the CBO estimates for how much impact that would have on our economy, how much it would drive uh, electric prices down. Uh, the analysis that's being done since then suggests that they really underappreciated the scale of the incentives in that legislation. And if we create the cheapest power on the planet right here in the United States, Credit Suisse is suggesting that might be half a cent per kilowatt hour or $5 per megawatt hour. Everyone on the planet is going to want to do the same thing. Uh, so by leading domestically, we create a path for much faster change internationally. I'm glad you brought up the Inflation Reduction Act, since that's our next uh, next set of questions that I wanted to ask you. So along those lines, you, we're going to talk about some of the long-term implications of this bill, which obviously was predominantly dominated in, uh, on with its climate provisions. But in terms of the immediate effects you've seen of this legislation since it passed uh, in August, can you give us a sense of, of how you think it's already reverberating, whether that's in the private sector, in the government, or elsewhere? Well, I, I think you see it in the private sector. If you follow the trade publications, we've seen battery factory after battery factory announcements, solar announcements for manufacturing. And I think one of the things that's really important to realize about the Inflation Reduction Act is it is substantial industrial policy. It doesn't put a, a thumb on the scale for this technology or that technology so much but it, it does create incentives across the board to drive pollution out of the economy. And I think the scale of what we've done, because those incentives are for the most part uncapped incentives, we will see an enormous change in our economy. Uh, we'll see the benefits of that in, in real jobs, in manufacturing jobs, in installation jobs, and you'll see power, uh, primarily electricity, uh, at, at levels of cost that we've never really seen before. Literally, the analysis that we're seeing suggests that it will be the cheapest power on the planet. And I think, you know, that is something that was underappreciated at the time. So it, just following up on that specific point, and analysts at the time projected that this bill alone would not achieve the reductions that President Biden has committed to, which is that the U.S. would reduce its greenhouse gas emissions at least in half compared to 2005 levels by the end of the decade. And I'm wondering what you think of that. Do you think that these kinds of analyses need to be updated? Are you satisfied with the kind of climate impact we will get from this bill? Or do you see further action that would be needed to, to really meet the U.S.'s goal on that front? Well, I, I think it's pretty clear that we're facing a, a catastrophic future. And the faster we act, uh, the, the more we mitigate that. So yes, I do believe we can do more and that we should do more. But I also think we're learning that this legislation ha actually has a substantially bigger impact than we may have appreciated at the time. Uh, there was a recent Credit Suisse report that suggests that the total spend, private plus public, as a result of the incentives in this legislation could be $1.7 trillion. Uh, that means we're gonna see more change in our economy and more action on climate and decarbonization in the next four years than we've seen in the previous 40. So I do think it's time to, to really take a victory lap of what we've accomplished and at the same time recognize 
that we're going to have to do many other things as well. There were things in this legislation that we were not successful at including. Uh, you know, for example, incentives on transmission that were very important uh, to me didn't end up in the bill. But we shouldn't also kick ourselves for for passing what is most the most effective uh, on a global scale climate investment in world history. And one component in the IRA that you helped secure is a rebate for electric appliances. Could you talk about how that program works, given that there are plenty of people in our audience who probably are looking into it and see it as one of the most direct impacts in their lives that they might experience as a result of that bill being passed? Absolutely. So there's there's about $9 billion of funding for direct electrification of home appliances. Everything from upgrading your service panel so that you can, you can deal with higher loads that may come with a electric vehicle or uh, additional electrification that replaces gas-fired uh, thermal heating in your house, hot water, those kinds of things, to uh, direct rebates for a new induction stove or a new heat pump water heater. All of these things give people the tools to be able to actually take action on climate change in their own lives. Uh, you know, I've been doing this to my house over the last couple of years, and it's it's really rewarding to realize that you are making a meaningful difference. And at the same time, you're taking a sort of long term charge of your energy costs. The combination of solar plus induction cooking plus heat pumps and heat pump water heaters uh, really uh, give you some of the most efficient tools to have a comfortable home and at the same time take a really meaningful action on climate change driving out the greenhouse gases that live in every one of our homes and businesses so you're right there there is an eagerness on the part of some americans to take advantage of it and we have a question from our audience julie mark in illinois that i wanted to share with you and see if you could respond uh, she asked, how can we expedite the climate parts of the IRA that will help homeowners and consumers? I recently bought a home with gas appliances that I need to replace immediately. I can't use the rebates in the IRA as by the Biden administration guidance and monies to states is too slow. So it looks like I won't get the rebates that I should be eligible for. And millions of homeowners should be buying those electric appliances now, too. What would you say to someone like Julie? Well, one of the things I would say to her is, like, look at January as a date when you can access some of those incentives immediately on the tax side. So if you're buying a new heat pump water heater or a new heat pump replacing an old gas-fired furnace, those tax rebates uh, become live next calendar year. Uh, in addition, we're working with states and particularly I'm working with my home state of New Mexico to speed up that process of getting those rebates available to people at the retail sector so that they can make the best possible decision about their future at the point of sale. And the legislation also earmarked billions of dollars uh, to create a U.S. supply chain for electric vehicles. Could you talk about what that means for the average American? One of the things that I've learned, uh, I actually, I was part of a college team that that built an electric vehicle, solar powered vehicle in the early 1990s, 1992, 93. We raced from Dallas to Minneapolis um, and we learned a lot from that process that we see in cars today. One of the things that I've learned with uh, I'm now in my second plug in vehicle 
is how much cheaper it is to run a car off of electricity as opposed to off of a, a internal combustion engine. It's, it's on the scale of a third of the cost on upfront energy, and then you have almost none of the maintenance costs, uh, changing the oil and tune-ups and the things that typically come with uh, internal combustion in, uh, engines. So when you create these incentives for people, what you really do is help levelize the upfront cost, and then they see the economic benefits for years down the road. Uh, one of the things we don't want to do is be dependent on hostile nations for the supply chain for these things. So doing actual industrial policy, bringing that supply chain home to the United States really gives us control over our own destiny. And we are already seeing the, the scale of battery announcements, both lithium ion, which is what we're going to see, especially in the auto sector, as well as for things like consumer electronics, but also new technologies uh, for the United States that are really going to help us control our own destiny. Okay, I do want to ask about the path ahead of Congress, but I do. Uh, but before that, what what kind of car did you and your college uh, friends uh, create, and uh, and what happened to it after you drove it to Dallas? Um, so it was a carbon fiber solar car that was flat on top. It looked like a big upside down wing. Uh, but there, you know, the materials technology that we used, like carbon fiber, things like regenerative braking, which were not in the auto industry at the time, migrated to the Prius and is now common on every plug-in vehicle in the United States. Um, LED lights, which weren't really used in the auto industry at the time, all of those things migrated from these races of college solar cars to the actual auto industry. And now, of course, we're seeing the actual electrification of the auto fleet. And we've seen that uh, in some countries, adoption rates, you know, dramatically higher than what we've seen in the U.S. so far. We're early on that that change, but it's a nonlinear change. And when you hit about six percent, it tends to to trend towards infinity. Excellent. OK, so now looking ahead. Uh, obviously, what, what we've been talking about in the past was achieved with solely Democratic support. And now that Republicans will control the House majority, what do you see in terms of a divided Congress shaping the path forward on climate policy? One of the things we have to do even in a divided Congress is the appropriations process. And that continues to be an opportunity to drive additional carbon out of the economy. Uh, so that's someplace I'll be looking to have an impact. Um, I also think we have opportunities for things, and, and the moment might not be right now, but to look at permitting that doesn't lower the bar on environmental quality, but does get to yes on something like a transmission project, yes or no for that matter, a whole lot faster. Got it. And now moving to the international stage, President Biden and China's uh, Xi Jinping recently met and agreed to collaborate once again on climate policy, which obviously is significant given that China and the United States rank as the world's biggest current greenhouse gas emitters. Do you trust China to make meaningful change, especially given what we've seen in the last few years or, you know, and what would you like China to do next? to help tackle this problem, given their outsized impact on what's happening and, and what enters the atmosphere? 
you know, China is, I don't think we're in a position to trust China, but as soon as acting on climate is clearly in their self-economic in, uh, interest, I think they will act very quickly, probably quicker than, you know, a messy democracy like the United States is able to move. But if we lead and we make the economics of all of this work for the rest of the world, even recalcitrant countries like China will act in their own economic interest. Even at a time, just to follow up on that, obviously they really, you know, are continuing to build coal plants and, you know, especially in the last year or so, we haven't seen, you know, they've actually moved, you know, quite quickly on EVs, but haven't moved as quickly in other areas. But you anticipate that they'll shift just going forward, given given their own self-interest? I think the economics, if we build successful economics for, for both generation uh, in particular, as well as for things like transportation, the industrial sector, other countries, all, all countries really will follow once the economics are in their interest. And we're creating, uh, you know, a, a model for that in the United States. So I, I think it's very um, positive that the U.S. and China are talking again. Uh, you know, if you look at their behavior on climate, it is not um, something that is consistent across the board. As you mentioned, they're moving very fast on EVs. And I think we have a responsibility to make sure that we own a substantial portion of the EV supply chain and the battery supply chain here in the United States to be able to compete with China. But they're also going to realize that if we have the cheapest power on the planet, then maybe building coal plants doesn't make sense and they should actually be investing more in renewables. And very quickly, we're almost out of time, but a bill you introduced, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, is awaiting Senate approval. And the editorial board here at The Post called it the most significant conservation law in decades. Are you confident it'll pass by year's end and why? We are working very hard to secure the passage of that legislation. And I am optimistic uh, but the end of any congressional session is always filled with some level of uncertainty. So, um, you know, this is this is a bill that would be a game changer for wildlife in the United States at a time when we all recognize there is an enormous wildlife and biodiversity crisis uh, in the planet. So the fact that we've secured so much bipartisan support for this legislation gives me optimism. Unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Senator Heinrich, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And we'll be right back in a few minutes with our next guest, Kathy Zoy, CEO of EVGo. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi, I'm Kathleen Koch. The Inflation Reduction Act is the U.S.'s largest ever federal investment in clean energy and combating climate change. But much of the law relies on tax credits and incentives like grants and loans. So corporations really have to step up and take a leading role for these green energy solutions to happen. Here to discuss this with me today is Shannon Kellogg. Shannon is the Vice President of Public Policy at Amazon Web Services, or AWS. Welcome, Shannon. Kathleen, thank you for having me. Shannon, how is AWS leading in the efforts among corporations to ensure a speedy transition to clean energy? 
Well, we've been uh, very involved in uh, renewable energy uh, for uh, a number of years now. In 2014, we announced a long-term goal of having our AWS or Cloud Computing Division footprint completely powered by renewable energy. Uh, that initially became uh, 2030 uh, was our original target, and then we pushed that up to 2025 as we continued to grow uh, the business. And so we are on track uh, to meet our 100% renewable energy goal by 2025. In the in the process, we have become the largest purchaser of renewable energy power now in the world two years running. And what that means in, say, the U.S. is that we have 199 projects now uh, that we have uh, supported uh, here in the U.S. are the equivalent of power for 3 million homes. That's really impressive. So 2025, um, do any policy changes need to happen to, uh, to, for you to reach that goal? You bet. Um, well, the legislation that was passed uh, earlier uh, this year was an important step forward. Uh, we would like to see as that's rolled out uh, a focus on grid modernization and as part of that overall grid modernization, making sure that we have the transmission infrastructure in place. So as more renewable energy projects come online throughout the U.S. to be able to transmit that power uh, to other locations from where these projects are being built. That is absolutely going to be critical. Uh, and so um, having uh, policymakers emphasize that in the implementation process as the funding goes out is going to be essential. You know, it was back in August when President Biden signed the uh, Inflation Reduction Law um, Act into law. What other um, next steps do you think are needed to facilitate action and, and really get the green energy transition going? Well, making sure that uh, the funding is rolled out in a very uh, timely fashion and having that additional emphasis on transmission. You know, having um, a, a larger uh, U.S. Uh, nationwide focus on grid modernization is going to be essential, and that's at the core uh, of the legislation, but also making sure, as I mentioned, that we have the transmission infrastructure in place to get more renewable energy out of different locations to other locations across the country. To me, that is one of the biggest things that needs to happen in the coming years. Climate awareness is growing around the world. Uh, you're seeing large corporations, uh, large industrial and energy companies recognizing that need to embrace the energy transition underway and then also the, the new technologies that are available for them to get there. How are AWS and cloud technologies playing a role in helping those companies operate both more efficiently and reduce their carbon footprint? Yeah, great question. Uh, we've been partnering with a number of utilities across the country as they make their own transitions uh, from um, uh, traditional providers into broader energy providers, including in many cases, renewable energy providers. Uh, we've also been working with utilities, for example, uh, as they seek to become more efficient and get the grids that they're operating to become more efficient. One recent example of that is a new effort that we announced with Duke Energy uh, as they move forward and try to provide um, uh, you know, more efficiencies within their systems, uh, not only to help them and their customers, but also hopefully 
uh, to um, uh, be a model of how this can be done to other utilities across the country. And so we're really excited about that new partnership with Duke Energy. Now, I was wondering if, if people are following in your footsteps, because I think that's that's quite a commitment uh, that to you know, be powered by fully 100 uh, percent renewable energy by 2025. Uh, are people following your footsteps and where does that commitment come from? Because that's very ambitious. Yeah, we're seeing the sector uh, move in this direction. Uh, of course, we're very proud of our leadership, again, being the largest corporate renewable energy uh, buyer in the world now, two years running. And over the years, we've had great leadership uh, in the company, first with Jeff Bezos and then Andy Jassy. Uh, and Andy, who was the long-term CEO of AWS, is now the CEO of Amazon. And then we have a new CEO of AWS, Adam Solipsky, who's also been a leader in this space. And so we've had great leadership uh, and a, a very strong commitment uh, to um, really invest in renewable energy. And of course, we are seeing that across the sector. There's a lot more work to be done, uh, but um, you know we've made great strides and uh, we're super committed to this. One broader um, uh, example of that commitment, not just to renewable energy, but to being a leader in global climate um, uh, and sustainability is uh, Amazon's founding of the Climate Pledge and how we've been um, really encouraging not just uh, organizations from our sector, but across multiple sectors to be be a part of that climate pledge. And that's another example of our leadership and the commitment at the top of the company. Shannon Kellogg, Vice President of Public Policy at Amazon Web Services. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kathleen. And now I'll toss it back to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. For those of you just joining us, I'm Juliet Eilprin, Deputy Climate and Environment Editor here at The Washington Post. For our next conversation, I am joined by Kathy Zoy. She's the CEO of EVGo, the largest public fast charging network for electric vehicles in the United States. Kathy, welcome to Washington Post Live. Great to see you. Juliet, nice to see you too. I think we're having technical difficulties for one second that we're going to work out so that we can hear you. Got it. Can you talk? Can you just say hello one more time, Kathy? Let's see if we can hear you now. It's nice to see you. With that. Awesome. Great. Okay. We'll work. We'll work through this. Um, President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act included a huge investment in electric vehicles and in the infrastructure of, around it. But um, now, so have you seen that impact on your business yet, given that the law was just signed uh, in August? We've seen a great deal of interest from many players about installing it. I'm getting a big which I can try to prove, but it's tricky. Is there something that I can do? Yeah, we're, we are having a couple audio. We're having uh, a little bit of the audio problem. Bear with us for one moment. Okay, okay we're just going to keep we're just going to keep talking. So, yes, go ahead in terms of what, what kind of interest are you seeing now that there's obviously the indication that there's going to be tremendous federal support for this kind of infrastructure? Look, 
the the car companies, the global automakers have already made commitments to invest $1.2 trillion to electrifying their fleets. What the IRA is doing is actually accelerating that across the board. So more cars are going to get manufactured more quickly um, in an environmentally sound way. More um, electric vehicle charging stations are going to get placed all across the country um, in corridors and in communities. It, it's just across the board, we're seeing an, an acceleration in, um, in, in, a, in a very, very important way because obviously we, climate change, the clock is ticking. Now, you've said that by 2030, Americans will be able to do a 15-minute charge anywhere they want to. Does this legislation ensure that that happens? Look, I think it does. We're we're at a tipping point in terms of the um, the availability, the interest, the appetite, and the sales of EVs. Like so, last year, 2021, we had maybe 0.5 percent of the cars on the road in America were EVs. Um, this last quarter, 6% of sales of cars were now EVs. Bloomberg New Energy Finance is saying that by the middle of this decade, that's going to go, we're going to be probably up at 6% of cars on the roads are going to be EVs. So we're on a very, very like strong upward trajectory. The car companies have announced that by over the next 18 months, we're going to have probably 130 new EV models. When I started working at EVgo uh, over five years ago, there were like three or four choices. We're now having you know 150 choices of cars. So all of that means that we're going to be seeing so much uptick, um, so many choices, whether you want to drive a little compact car or a pickup truck that's electric, you now will have that choice. And explain what it would mean for climate change if we had a wholesale shift to electric vehicles in the United States. Well, you know, it's a great question. When, when I was approached to take the reins at EVgo in 2017, um, one of the reasons that I decided to actually make that shift, where I had, as you know, I've been spending most of my time on the power sector side. In 2016, it was the first year in the United States that emissions, greenhouse gas emissions from the transportation sector exceeded those of the power sector. So as Senator Heinrich said, there's lots of more work to be done to clean up our power grid and to electrify everything. The transportation sector historically had been lagging. Fast forward to today, and as I said, there's not a car company operating globally that's not electrifying its offerings. So the investment is squarely behind that. And I think that because that investment is there and the policies are in place in the United States and elsewhere to accelerate market penetration, we are actually able to achieve those goals. And as it stands right now, uh, are there the electric charging stations available to accommodate the kind of dramatic change that these car companies are talking about and that, you know, you and others are, are envisioning? Not yet. Not yet. And that's why we're all really, really busy. Um, so let me just tell you, so EVgo, as, a, as the largest public where it will deliver a return to the shareholders. Now, historically, that has only been in places where there are enough EVs um, and in, in, in predominantly in cities. What the IRA and the bipartisan infrastructure law do together is they create a much larger geographic footprint that the private sector can come to with our really innovative solutions to deploy EV charging infrastructure everywhere. 
And that's what's so exciting about this is that we we would, you know, we would have grown what we like to do as I and I used to say, we like to do a Wayne Gretzky thing. We like to skate ahead of the puck, but just ahead of the puck. So we would we would build our infrastructure in cities where we were very confident that the EVs were coming right away or where there were public policy incentives like in California or where we had a partnership with a with a car company like EVgo has a big partnership with General Motors that where they help support us getting building earlier than we would have otherwise. Now, now with $5 billion in NEVI and the and the 30C tax credits in the IRA, there are many more geographies where it makes financial sense for innovative private companies like EVgo to deploy our charging infrastructure to create that ubiquity of charging so that not one driver will have range anxiety in terms of like being able to charge. And just briefly, I have another question, but just to stop, can you explain to our audience what NEVI is? Since that's oh, sorry about that. Um, the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure, which bill or part of the bipartisan infrastructure law, which is which is basically it's a five billion dollar grant program where each state, you know, based on its population and its and its a number of highways gets money and, and and can allocate that the state departments of transportation will be providing grants to those in their states that want to build that infrastructure so what happened is states needed to provide plans on how they would use it those plans were approved by the federal government at the end of september now that money will be allocated to the states and the states will start start having competitive processes um to uh, roll out that money, the, the first tranche of money has, I think, it's 600 some million dollars. So those funds will start to flow in 2023 and to companies like EVgo that are going to be building infrastructure along highway corridors. And that's the first tranche of NEVI goes to specifically making sure that within every 50 miles of a, of a, of a corridor, of a highway, there is a, is a fast charging station to create that sort of sense of comfort for EV drivers if they're going to be going to their families over Thanksgiving or whatever it is. And moving over to the technological front now, are you satisfied with the speed that we're seeing in terms of these advances when it comes to both charging and battery technology um, so far? Where, where do you think we are along those lines? We, well, look, we are in the early innings of, of a technological, of a once in a century sectoral transformation. And it is really, really exciting. Uh, every So when I got to EVgo again in 2017, fast charging was defined as 50 kilowatts. Now the typical fast charger that we deploy is 350 kilowatts, so seven times faster. Interestingly, that that charging speed is faster than any car can accommodate now, but the cars themselves are getting more and more capable. Uh, I think the the Lucid Air is the fastest um, EV in terms of charging um, capacity right now, and it goes. To, it'll take a charge of 330 kilowatts. In any case, all of that is basically a race for speed and power and durability, and. Um, all of that, all of that is happening really, really in a very, very exciting way. I think Senator Heinrich talked a little bit about building the battery capacity here in the United States. Uh, lithium ion is the is the battery chemistry of choice right now. But again, what we will be seeing, based on what I what I see in coming out of our labs um, and our universities, is new battery chemistries that are, as I say, are lighter, um, more durable, and and just really, really exciting. So it, it's just. It's a super, super interesting time um, in the early in, early innings of a sector. 
And according to Bloomberg News, you recently told investors that more than 100 charging stations were stalled because there was a shortage of a key electric uh, electricity device. Can you explain what happened and whether you see this as a continued threat to the expansion of charging stations? I'm not actually sure what the specific um, reference is, Juliet, but but what I can tell you is that that the um, the we have a supply chain secured for our fast charging stations because we've been working very, very closely with our vendors um, so that we've got probably 4,500 new charging stalls in our active engineering and construction pipeline. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's what's, that's what's coming. Um, the, the charging, charging, fast charging stall itself has about 2000 components. So again, I'm not exactly sure what that reference is. Sometimes there are problems with the connectors. Um, and they need to be replaced. Sometimes there's a problem with the with the, with the screen on the charger. Um, what we do, what we you know, we have a program called EVGo Renew, where we have a 24/7 call center, and we we get out there and we we replace whatever is necessary to replace um, as soon as we possibly can. Uh, overall, our network has mid 90% uptime um, across the country. We won't be satisfied until. Go, driving up to a charging station and getting a charge is as simple as turning on your living room lights. So the whole industry is actually working together, the car manufacturers and the charging companies, to make sure that we create that seamless driver experience. Got it. Now we have another question from our audience, from Robin Weir of California. She asks, uh, in, in the United States, uh, is the United States just trading one evil for another when changing out from fossil fuels to electric, being the uh, the resources needed to make electric batteries and the environmental responsibility of disposal? Now, you hinted at that or you touched on that a little bit when you talked about lithium ion and new developments. But could you talk about this? I know that, you know, when we cover this at the Post, there, you know, issues that come up all the time in terms of what kind of mining might stem, whether it's here or abroad when it comes to supplying the electrical, you know, the electric vehicle supply chain. And, and it would be helpful to know what you think of that. Yeah, look, I agree with Rob, we can't trade one evil for another and we mustn't, right? So what we need to be doing as we're, as we're sourcing the material for batteries is make sure that the mining is done in an environmentally responsible way, that we consider the full life cycle. What we also need to do is recover where we can the, the materials from batteries that are that have that have finished their useful life in a vehicle. I mean, one of the things that EVGo did um, a few years ago was we took old EV batteries and put them into stationary storage at a, a few of our charging stations because that was a better reuse for those for those batteries. But it, it's incumbent on all of us to look at the full life cycle of of every bit of of every bit of both the EV, the charging station, um, so that we are not actually creating one problem while solving another. Got it. And and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but, you, you know, in 2021, electric vehicles accounted for roughly, I believe, 4.4% um, of new car sales. And as you indicated, it went up to, I think, you know, it's gone up to maybe 6% of new car sales. When do you expect uh, us to reach the kind of tipping point that you've outlined where EVs go mainstream? Well, I, look, I think that it's interesting, even though um, every every EV that gets manufactured now gets sold. There are waiting lists for EVs. So 
dare I say, even as the economy could slow down in a recession, we've not seen any indication in the diminution of the appetite for buying electric vehicles. And as the as the price as the offerings expand, as the price points expand, we would expect that to increase as well. I don't know what defines a tipping point here, whether it's six percent market share or eight percent market share or ten percent market share. What we've seen is when I mean, if it's ten percent, it's it's it seems to me to be unstoppable, right? Like we we when you have the entire global car industry investing one point two trillion dollars um, to go electric, like whether it happens in 2025, 2027, or 2030, it 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 matters somewhat, but it doesn't change the the upshot of the fact that that transportation is going electric. Like light duty vehicles have been the start. Trucks are moving in that direction. And my goodness gracious, other forms of transportation may come that way, go that way too. Now, there are things that car manufacturers and policymakers can do to provide additional incentives for folks to buy electric vehicles. What can you do in the fast charging space to provide, you know, encouragement for people to switch over to EVs? Well, what we are, what we at EVgo, we are, we are creating a seamless experience. We build charging stations where people like to be anyway, or where they need to be anyway. So we don't really feel that going to have charge your car should be a, an extra activity in your weekend or in your afternoon. So we build in grocery store parking lots where you're going to go be there for 20 or 30 minutes anyhow. So you drive into the parking lot, you plug in, and then you come out next to playgrounds, near, near, um, near at the gym. All of those places because it's a convenient experience. We've also built functionality so that if you want to, you can make a reservation at one of an EV, one of our EVgo stations. So all of this, what we can do is make it easy, convenient, reliable, so that charging just becomes another thing that you know it, it's just an extra two minutes to plug in while you're going to do something else. And so I think that's really important. I think making sure that we build our stations everywhere. So you know, at EVgo we have a philosophy that is electric for all. So we're building in disadvantaged communities, and we're now with with the with the IRA and the the bipartisan infrastructure law are able to to uh, do it, uh, to build on corridors in a financially sensible way. With that, all of those things will again, uh, it's about convenience, reliability, and amenity, and that's what we're all about. And what are the biggest obstacles that EVgo faces right now? Um, look, the the it takes us four to eight weeks to build a fast charging station. But the time it takes from thinking about where one is going to be, identifying a site and having it energized, actually is taking 18 months these days. The long pole in the tent at the moment is is the electric utility process. So we, you know, we're EVgo is not we don't generate the electricity on site. We're connected to the grid. So we need to work with the local electric utility. They need to approve the design. They need to be granted access if there's a service upgrade required on to that property. And then they need to do the final inspection. What what has happened with some of the supply chain challenges um, that have arisen from the pandemic and from the war in Ukraine is that getting transformers to upgrade the system are taking a long time now. So this is all a long way of saying, Juliet, that the timetable for getting these stations to go live is is longer than we would like. Um, and probably doesn't match President Biden's ambitions in terms of timing about how quickly we can get all of these things into the market. So we're 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 hustling. I guess another thing that I would I would think about is we actually um, work very very closely with our our vendors of our fast charging equipment who are, who have made commitments to build capacity in the United States to manufacture those chargers. 
However, that again, doesn't happen overnight. So what we would say on the Buy America, Build America provisions is that we what we actually would, would think is more sensible is to have 2023 be that period where the, the companies that have made commitments that fully support building in America can build those, those facilities and that in 2024 is when we actually start to, to to be able to we'll be able to procure the equipment that's actually made in America. So those are just two little things. Again, they don't change the macro narrative, which is we're going electric. We're going electric really quickly. The legislation is helping us accelerate that in a, in a commercially sound way, creating American jobs. But those, these first couple of years, there may be some, some some teething pains as we as states learn to how to do the grant making as as manufacturers build their facilities in the United States and as utilities actually get their heads around what is it to actually have transportation electrifying at the same time I've got everybody building solar at home and everything else. And in terms of so when we're talking about, for example, what government can do more. So what what I hear you saying is that so it's a combination of some of the guidance that you expect to come out of this administration as they're implementing the Inflation Reduction Act, but also, you know, it seems like you're alluding to whether it's on the state and local level or potentially, I suppose, the federal level, depending on where you're building these charging stations. Permitting is obviously something that comes up a great deal as a potential obstacle to expanding the clean energy sector and the clean tech sector in the United States. So, do, you know, th this is a thorny issue that um, has been fought over for a long time. To what extent do you think those kinds of changes can happen in the months to come? Yeah, look, I'm, I don't mean to sound Pollyannish, but I'm really optimistic. You know, when I was Assistant Secretary of, of Energy in the Obama administration, and we had, a, we had again, at, at the time, um, with the stimulus bill was going to be the biggest investment ever. Well, obviously, that's a teeny compared to this. But we, what we did is we, we actually saw that local permitting for solar was turning out to be a bottleneck. So at the federal government, we came up with a set of best practices that, get, that local governments could take on, and we started to see that process move more quickly. This is not dissimilar in terms of charging infrastructure. We need to have local governments have more experience with it, have a playbook where they understand what they're actually permitting. We need to have the utilities gain a little bit more experience. What we're doing at EVGO is we're providing the utilities with our 18 month forward plan so that they know where we're gonna be wanting to build so that they can order transformers or whatever's required ahead of time. Look, I just think that there's, we're all like, you know, as Senator Heinrich said, we are all in this together. I think that everybody is motivated to get out there and and deploy clean energy on the power side, deploy, you know, electrify our transportation fleet. So we need to work together to make sure that it gets done. Um, and I and I think that with with the goodwill of everybody involved, we're, we're going to be able to get there. And what do you think businesses can do to accelerate green technologies and and make this shift happen faster than it's happening right now? Look, I, I think, you know, making investments, right? Like, you know, I mean, EVGO is emblematic of it. We, we're, we're, we're a company, a private company that is actually making investments and partnering with others to get this work done. So, like, I think the, the great thing about the IRA uh, is, is that it's attracted even more players from the private sector side saying, okay, this is not fringe, this is mainstream. If I wanna be in the energy sector, if I wanna be in the transportation sector, then I need to be doing it cleanly. And because that's where the money is. Unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Kathy Zoy, thank you so much for joining us here at Washington Post Live. Thanks for the opportunity, Juliet. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.